0: these groups would have definitely all of America Audio with your host,
1: Tim Benal. Hello out there, my friends. This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 3. This week, we are continuing our marathon discussion on the Foo Fighter era in ufology with Keith Chester, author of Strange Company, Military Encounters with UFOs in World War II. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. The Foo Fighters story is sort of just breaking in America, sort of slight rumblings. The war is nearly over. Enter us this week. We're going to find out some of the stuff we learned in retrospect about trends involving the Foo Fighters. What was their deal with radar? What are the similarities and differences between European and Pacific Foo Fighters? We're going to discuss the whole post-war period. And as we love to do on the program, we're going to delve into the big picture questions. Plus, at the end of the program, we're going to hear about Keith's mentor, Len Stringfield, and his role in shaping ufology. So you get a little bonus biography portion of the program, too. Tons and tons more, of course. It is jam-packed. It is the culmination of this three-hour interview where we cover, hopefully, a lot of the things you were wondering as you listen to part one. We're going to start answering here in part two. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Keith Chester, let me give you a little bit of background on him. Born in 1957, a Sputnik baby. Keith Chester's interest in UFOs began in 1966, with a daylight sighting while growing up in Frederick, Maryland. Art, film, and music have been his constant fuel from which he has drawn inspiration throughout his 50 years. His passionate interest in the UFO phenomenon culminated in the book Strange Company, Military Encounters with UFOs in World War II. At present, he's researching for another book, making abstract films, and tapping into the world around him. Keith does not have a website, so definitely you just want to go check out Strange Company. It is a fantastic book. You definitely want to read it if you're interested in this often overlooked realm of ufology known as the Foo Fighter era. Go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Anomalous Books is the publisher. Go to their website, pick it up from them. Definitely pick up Strange Company. I highly recommend it. Having perused many of the titles available in the last year, I definitely would call Strange Company one of the best UFO books of 2007. But enough about all that, enough of my yakking, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on October 10th, 2007, Keith Chester, Part 2 of 2, talking about the Foo Fighter era in ufology on VOA Audio, Season 3. One of the more prosaic explanations that the scientists back home tried to use as an explanation for the Foo Fighters was the St. Elmo's fire phenomenon, and you have a pretty cool uh story in the book about someone who did experience the st almost fire when they were flying it sounds nothing like what the foo fighter phenomenon and all the associated type things were i guess talk a little bit about the st almost fire thing and and um why probably these foo fighter sightings and as i say i'm using that as the blanket term for all these sort of aerial phenomena why they probably weren't st almost fire
0: well the st almost fire was reported uh a lot of times out at sea and um uh... This type of phenomena, electrical charge phenomena, did not have the characteristics of a solidified, what appeared to be object. These things, this electrostatic or electromagnetic fields that were dancing on metallic objects or around them, creating a luminosity or coming through and dancing across the inside of the plane or along the wingtip. When they were seeing, the people seeing them at that time realized it was a, it was actually some type of phenomenon that had to do with natural weather or whatever it was. It wasn't scaring anyone. They were The reports were coming in, and it's like all the Saint on fire. It had to do with – I don't really know the science behind it well enough to talk about it yeah. accurately. But when it came to comparing that in the Foo Fighters, the Foo Fighters were, were acting as an intelligently controlled aircraft would. And in many cases, they were a very defined – light, and they weren't moving erratically in terms of, like, it it would come up in the air and fizzle out or shoot off in, in, in some unknown direction. However, they did see things like that. The Foo Fighter in general that the listeners are most interested in would be the ones that actually came out of nowhere, appeared out of nowhere, were not on radar. They were acting and maneuvering like the fighter aircraft. They were outperforming the fighter aircraft, and in, in some instances they were actually being chased by the fighter aircraft that could not bring them down. So that is a, that in itself is a far different type of operational standard when you look at both type of phenomena. And, of course, each were a phenomena.
1: And the other question I had here that, that sort of just came up, you sort of touched on it a couple times here, and, and maybe we can sort of delve into it. And this is radar detection versus non-radar detection. There doesn't seem to be much rhyme or reason as to why some of these objects show up on the radar, why some of them don't. You know, sometimes they show up on the radar and they can't see them, or uh, other times they're not on the radar at all and they can see them right in front of them. I guess talk about a little bit about that whole spectrum of, of the radar detection scenario, and why do you think uh, that's the case?
0: Well, when we're talking about radar, it's a very serious situation in terms of, we know that Dr. David T. Griggs, who was leading the investigations, of the food fighters, was involved, and a few others, Dr. Alvarez. What is important to realize is that Germany was investigating and researching anti-radar paints, They were uh, researching anything they could to do to mask the aircraft. So when you look at it in a situation like that, you have to say, were some of these Foo Fighters actual experimental German drone or remote control aircraft that were able, were their first stealth? They could have been the first stealth type of uh, capability. Because there is one case that was lumped in with the Foo Fighter reports. As a Foo Fighter, as one of the 415th crews saw the lighted object come up to them, but as the object turned to leave, it was a solid ball of light, but then it, they could see what they appeared to be a wing over, as if this thing had wings and actually took a dive. And I believe that case was not detected on the radar, even though they saw this. And in the intelligence memoranda, there were things, that what they called flying flack, which were winged type rockets that were either remotely controlled, radio controlled, or whatever was taking place, and uh, that were seen. They actually had uh, sightings of these that they were. Just, they called them flying flack, and they looked like a bat. They looked like they just. I guess you would call it the flying wings of today or of yesteryear, but very mi- miniature in size. And uh, so it's being confused. So I really think that. The radar situation, the military intelligence was really thinking that Germany had come upon this and were utilizing it to an extent. However, if they were, and assume let's say they were doing that, it was still limited. Yeah. And it was different. But it was out there another way of confusing the the whole phenomenon issue, uh, another way of causing uh, confusion among air intelligence and causing them to lump what may have been a true UFO sighting, into an ordinance or a, a secret Intel a secret weaponry type of signing the radar issue is is very suspicious you could look at it all they were actually encountering German secret technology or it just happened to be just like the UFO today something that was not able to be picked up on radar due to a much more uh, advanced situation I... That's a fine gray area that where there's no reports, and that's where Dr. Greg's report that we spoke about earlier is very significant because as a radar expert, he would have been looking at all these factors to determine, okay, could A, A, B, or C. Yet in 1969, he felt there was no answer. And also, one thing I forgot to bring up, Dr. McDonald during the interview felt like Dr. Griggs was avoiding answering too much, as if he knew more than he was letting on during that conversation. That's just, I, I didn't want to throw that out there because, again, we have to uh, look at it it's still a classified subject to this day.
1: Yeah. Let's sort of talk about the similarities and the differences between the European and Pacific Foo Fighter sightings because uh, obviously there's a ton in Europe, there's a ton in the Pacific realm, Um, Maybe a lot of people don't realize that maybe they think it's just a European phenomenon uh, from the war But actually it was going on in in both elements. And of course as you noted the Pacific uh, Theater of operation was littered with all kinds of strange things that were going on being sent up by the Japanese I guess just sort of dive into the similarities and differences between these two different uh, theater operations and the Foo fighter sightings that were going on
0: there. Okay for the European theater Mediterranean Theater, it seemed that the the Foo Fighter, the objects being labeled under the term Foo Fighter, seemed to be an intelligently controlled aircraft that had high maneuverability and could outperform our our aircraft. When we go to the Pacific, the term changes to balls of fire. Foo Fighter is not used. Mm -hmm. It didn't make it down to Pacific Theater Intelligence. for one thing, uh, General LeMay, Curtis LeMay, was running the 21st uh, uh, Bomber Command of the, within the 20th Air Force, and his he had his intelligence men really investigate this the phenomenon being seen because it was multiple. There was so much being seen uh, in a period of, like, between April and June of 1945. It was, like, unprecedented. They had what they called the BACA, which was the manned rocket, which was, Actually, go into the B-29 bombers and just destroy it. It's like a kamikaze weapon. Yep, they had to the circular what what deemed to be circular objects come up and pace the aircraft, fly around them, travel with the aircraft for over an hour or more out to sea, turn back, and they couldn't see wings. So I don't know of any reports that really have been discovered that show how a circular aircraft uh, rocket or ordnance was capable of doing that at the time, unless it was, course, remote control or radio control, but then you have to have an aircraft within the vicinity, so the, there's that possibility, but no evidence bears that. Of course, there were rockets coming up, which had a distinct flight pattern, but some things would change course, and that would confuse them. They couldn't label it correctly, and it was just a mass of all it, this aerial tech I forget the term they used. It was like aerial oddities. Mm-hmm. Uh, pyrotechnics that were being thrown at these bombers by the Japanese, allegedly. But still, mixed in there were aircraft or, or some type of object that were operating under intelligent control and seemed to really confuse uh, all the, those seeing them. And, of course, uh, Dr. Griggs, when he went down there to investigate this, he realized that what they were reporting did not quite fit the European model, let's say. Yeah. But he realized there was something definitely different and unique that may not be ordnance related So he was probably looking at it, I'm assuming this, through the eyes that what do the, what do the Japanese have that could be in their arsenal at that time of the war that could mimic this? And unfortunately, the documentation doesn't exist. Even after Japan surrendered, Dr. Griggs went in with the ALSOs team, uh, which were scientists going into Japan, interviewing for everything, including the atomic bomb, and nothing could be found. He actually were, was asking some of the Japanese prisoners of war about this phenomenon, and they had no answers. So he wasn't finding correlation on the ground in that could answer what many of these sightings were. So that mystery remains, you know, even though they weren't called Foo Fighters, there may have been indeed some craft that was operating in all theaters of operation of the war that were definitely very unique and out of this world type of technology. Yeah. Uh, but what's crazy is even some of the ordnance-related material that they were seeing. I personally, and I know of no, no reports that defines them. It still was considered pyrotechnic phenomena in the re- intelligence memoranda. Now, of course, I didn't go into post war documentation searches like I have in World War II. So if it's there, it's to be discovered.
1: We're sort of moving now into, well, let's just say, uh, I guess the first part of the war is over. Maybe your answer will segue into the end of the second part of the war. Uh, the, the European theater of operations is over. Germany surrendered. And, and the U.S. is now, they're, they're bringing in these German scientists and the, the, the people who ran the German Air Force and everything, and they're trying to get to the bottom of the Foo Fighter phenomenon. Um, I guess talk a little bit about that period after Germany fell, when the U.S. was interrogating these guys, and what they were trying to find out about the Foo Fighters and what they did find out.
0: Okay. Well, I, I think just to lead into that, we have to determine well, what was set up and what was taking place, That would give the uh, Allies a comprehensive database, a way of bringing this information to bear. And uh, it started pretty much uh, in January and started with D Day. And we have British and American organizations uh, that were set up, and all these teams of intelligence operatives in the field, in all theaters moving through. We had the United States Navy technical mission to Europe, where technicians coming in to. Into Germany to determine the capabilities in all realms of scientific matters, aeronautical matters, weaponry, you name it. Mm -hmm. We had OSS operatives on the ground conducting investigations, which we do know an OSS investigation did take place of the two fighters. Very little has been discovered about that or said about it. The Office of Scientific Research and Development had groups of scientists on the ground. There were an array of Air Force intelligence teams, including. ATI, which was very critical. And it's important I, I tell you this because it was such a massive exploitation of Germany that we have to assume that up to this point, something extraordinary was being observed. If we look at it through those eyes, and then these
2: teams,
0: these groups, would have definitely been involved in extracting information, looking into it. And uh, so what happened was there was combined intelligence Objective subcommittee, which was an organization set up within SHAFE to assemble a team of scientists and engineers of all backgrounds. So as they went into Germany, whatever type of laboratory, whatever type of personnel, uh, material, anything they found could be extracted, could be studied, determined importance. They had what they called a blacklist that they had objectives set up in terms of, let's say, air technical intelligence groups would go in. They're looking for radar installations. They're looking for uh, anything that had to do with aeronautical research. They're looking for anything that had to do with aircraft in that vein. And the ATI was important because General Carl Spatz had put together the United States Strategic Air Forces. That was a key thing because, of course, when it was established in, in uh, January of 44, it's mission was to go in and find this stuff, find all the, all these elements that Germany had that would help us understand what they, where they were going and help exploit them. Mm-hmm. By the time Germany fell, it actually became an exploitation type of uh, operation. And it was a mad race. The Russians were after German technology and sciences and, and all the facilities. The British were, we were, everyone wanted a slice of the pie. And, uh, I do feel that indeed the uh, the Foo fires were part of those uh, those intelligence uh, t- factors that they were looking for. I think Griggs was involved. Robertson, we know, was involved. Griggs was definitely involved. Luis Alvarez has been mentioned as being involved, uh, and the OSS mission, I'm sure, was involved. Too. They were looking for the atomic bomb. However, if you look at some of the reports that came out of there. They were uh, writing up reports about stratospheric aircraft. Why? Because it had to do, in some factor, the delivery of an atomic bomb. So they wanted to know anything unusual. We don't care how outlandish, what it is, find out, and let's get it back to uh, headquarters to determine the significance. You had British uh, air intelligence teams on the ground, and a lot of this stuff was being orchestrated out of right field, in uh, Ohio, so many people know how important White Field is uh, regarding the early years of ufology. And uh, one of the key people was a Howard McCoy, and he was the chief of the Air Technical Intelligence for Aircraft Research Productions. And by '45, he was the chief of intelligence for something called Operation Lusty. What is very important about Operation Lusty is that it stands for Luftwaffe secret technology. To this day, I believe that there's much that came out of Germany has not been reported as being German and was exploited in the auspices of the Cold War in terms of that technology was actually continued from the drawing boards or possibly what there were craft in existence that they just started to mimic and utilize, all types of things. We know for a fact that when they went in, they discovered Germans were at least 20 years ahead of us in aeronautical research. Oh, wow. And that really scared the Allied command. So one of the four foremost thinkers was General Hap Arnold, who was commanding general of the Army Air Forces, and he put together several teams. He put together um, the von Karman mission, which was very significant. The von Karman mission was uh, headed by a theoretical physicist, one of the leading ones in the United States, uh, Theodore von Karman. He was brought out of retirement by Arnold and said, Look, I want you to grab together a team of scientists. You'll be put in military uniform, ranks according to your your status in civilian life, and you're going to go into Germany and find out what they have and think 20 years in the future. I need to put together an Air Force. That is the way of the future of warfare. I want you to think science fiction. So that was his mission. He moved in there. And I believe under the Von Karman mission, along with Project Lusty, many things were brought into play. We know for a fact that uh, Von Karman had – come across all the wind tunnels, which were very essential in terms of uh, new aircraft design and testing. We also know that uh, Von Braun and his whole rocket team surrendered and were extracted and put over into Texas and brought back. They were actually, they put us on the moon, basically. That rocket team came over. They, they developed the Apollo project. We know that the bacteriological warfare program was set up by the Germans brought over here we know that it was just tons and tons and tons of documentation were passed into these uh, research centers throughout the United States. And the significance of that is many people have heard of Project Paperclip, which actually was the exploitation of the German personnel for, like, I think it carried on into the 50s, late, like late 50s. They finally stopped it, but it started with what they called Project Overcast, and to this day, there's a lot of suspicion about some of the Nazi war criminals who committed atrocities, who were very uh, influential with secret technological programs, that they may have uh, escaped prosecution due to the fact that they were utilized by the United States or allied powers in exchange for their freedom. Uh, that's all hypothesis, but there's still a raging debate over that. We we do know that this documentation was in the hundreds and hundreds of tons just in aeronautical research uh, that was discovered throughout Germany in caves and mine shafts and wells. They were just hiding it everywhere. And I don't think there's been a full documentation of exactly how far they were. And this is why you see the German Nazi flying saucer scenario being proposed in terms of identifying what the flying saucer was during the war. Yeah. And that's another whole in-depth aspect that um, is very intriguing. But all these teams were there bringing in this information. And so where it led, did it come to a conclusion of what the Foo Fighters were, may well have. But for some reason, if it did, it's still classified, which is a mystery to me. Mm -hmm. If it was something very normal, it was just advanced aircraft, of the day, you know, 20 years later, okay, but it's 60 years later, and we're still dealing with a situation where there's no answers, there's a huge hole in documentation, and there is at the National Archives alone, there is 1,200,000 documents that have to do with air intelligence from 1942 to about 1953. Wow. Still classified. Oh, wow. Still classified. I, In fact, I had finally tapped into that. Some of those documents, and uh, was getting some of the boxes released to me through FOIA when 911 occurred, and the U.S. Air Force and the Department of Energy, two big entities, came into the archives and reclassified it and completely voided my FOIA. Oh man! Just because it had like the term OSS in it, or some crazy stupid thing, it's it's a it's a real sour note with the uh, National Archives because. Some of the documentation you could probably find at a university library or another organization, but they just did a blanket crackdown on some of this. But there still is a lot of missing holes that could be accounted for in terms of telling us what some of the technology was and, you know, did they know about UFOs. My guess is that type of intelligence ended up with the Air Force once the project uh, sign, blue book, and saucer apparatus speaking mm-hmm. And what's interesting is many of those people involved with those projects were involved with the document and the technological research extraction out of Germany. So they would know if there indeed was a UFO with the capabilities of what we're discussing here in terms of was it extraterrestrial. If there was an answer, Germany should have had it. You know, we didn't own... The airspace, if the United States and RAF were seeing these things, why weren't the Germans? Allegedly they were, but the documentation doesn't exist, and it's not near as many uh, of the pilots coming out talking about this like there are with the Allies.
1: Yeah, that was what I was just going to ask you. Um, that that seems to be like the popular opinion, or, or that seems to be the story I guess you get when it comes to the Foo Fighters. So they were seeing them too. How prevalent do you think that was that the German pilots were seeing them and the Japanese pilots, I guess you'd say, too? Um, how prevalent were they seeing them as far as you know? And as you said, it's hard to get the information. How hard is it to get that information?
0: Well, that information, for some reason, does not exist. I mean, there are researchers who do have access to the German archives. And um, to my knowledge, very little comes out that says we were seeing a phenomenon. However, in the intelligence uh, aspect of the United States and Royal Air Force, you constantly hear post-war where uh, intelligence officers, ex-intelligence officers were, were saying how they were conducting interrogations with the German pilots who were thinking the sightings were ours because they were seeing them too. But I have not seen, personally, the documentation that's, you know, of these German interrogations. Yeah. So that's where, the, you know, it's like, wow, it's such a big hole there. And um, it, it needs to be explored so much further. I did come across a veteran personally who was, after the war, he had he had seen a Foo Fighter on January 1st, 1945. He saw something over Germany uh, about the time the Battle of the Bulge was raging below. And it performed maneuvers around the aircraft and disappeared. And it, it startled them in terms of they... He personally believed it was something German, but the pilots said no. So there's that debate between them. But after the war, he attended some type of aerospace or – not aerospace, but uh, some type of convention at Niagara Falls with one of the uh, aviation industry people. And speaking to the group was an air intelligence officer who, during the war, had interrogated the Germans. Well, after it was over, Lieutenant Barber, as his name, walked up to the, the ex-intelligence officer and said, you know, you spoke about everything about the war except for the Foo Fighters. And, uh, he goes, oh, the intelligence officer said, y- you saw those two? And he said, why, well, yes, I saw it on January 1st. My experience. He said, well, that's really interesting because I specifically remember a case on January 1st where the RAF night fighter pilots were actually reporting the Foo Fighter objects, and they were also being reported by the German knife fighters in the area. So both people were seeing it, but it doesn't say what it was, where it came from, however it was still uh, a strange mystery. This shows that they were being seen by the, um, the Axis pilots, but where is this documentation?
1: Do you think it's possible that that sort of documentation fell through the cracks, if you will, into the black hole or the black budget realm of uh, the UFO-type investigation that goes on by the government? Do you think um, that any sort of stuff related to the Foo Fighters that might have been found in Germany pretty much uh, was taken away and and not – that's why we don't know about it anymore?
0: I'm convinced of that. I'm convinced that these sightings were so prevalent and a little bit – you know, it's pretty amazing the amount of documentation that I did uncover that discussed the phenomenon. I mean I did there was stuff being seen. However I do think that they had the answers by the end of the war or they were just as confused as we are now. That they just had more information. Yeah. But another mystery is is maintaining that type of some people would call a conspiracy around the world. How is it, you know, we're not seeing this big uh release of documents from the Italian government, from the German government, from the Russian government, from the, you name it. And is it also classified on a, on a level that is, you know, beyond the uh, the capability of, you know, civilians to know about? Are we able to actually coordinate with governments at that level to keep that information in? Why wouldn't they release it either? So I think that more answers to the food fire phenomenon was uncovered with the exploitation of Germany. But why Germany, German records do not indicate this, that. I, I can't answer. Just you know, I can theorize all day long. Yeah, <laughs> that's
1: that's the UFO phenomenon for yeah. <laughs> you.
0: <laughs> it, it really depends on what eyes you look through. I mean, I really looked through. If you look through a with the war, with the blinders on during the war, the majority of what was being seen, if you looked at that, you'd have to say German technology. But then you have to throw in the accounts that are not that are, have not been found which are extraordinary, and I am convinced that that stuff was censored. But if you look at it just through there, there's nothing. But when you look at the UFO phenomenon as a whole, prior to the war and after the war, you think, no, there's no way that could be German technology. And the amount of sightings being seen, and you throw in the whole abduction factor, we're going into another whole quagmire there in terms of what could be taking place. And it's just – the phenomenon is huge. And I heard Jerome Clark speak – he was on uh, Earl Bruce Knapp's radio uh-huh. show, and he said that we really can't call it a UFO phenomenon. We have to call it UFO phenomena, and I, I really think that's what, what's going on, that it's very, very complex, in-depth, but if you look at it through the World War II, just like I did, it seems to be aircraft, and then it comes down to the question, was it extraterrestrial, was it secret technology? And then both camps can set up shop and say, we feel it is secret technology that has not been uh, given to the public because it was brought in under the auspices of the Cold War. And then the other camp says, no, we were dealing with an extraterrestrial situation because there's no proof that Germany or any other Allied power had the capabilities to build and utilize aircraft during those early years especially when you start having extraordinary sightings in the 30s and 40s, early 40s. So it, it's a big mystery of why there's no documentation, good documentation, coming out of the other countries.
1: Yeah, and now you kind of touched on this popular theory du jour, I guess you could say, of the, of the German UFO that they were developing something like that, or, or you know, I've, I've only done sort of like peripheral research into that. I'm sure you've looked into it more than I have. Um, what do you know about that theory that Germany had their own sort of vehicle that, you know, that would, we would consider a UFO? Not not that they had a UFO from somewhere else, um, but that, you know, they developed some kind of uh, airplane, if you will, that, that resembled a UFO.
0: I have to say that I am impressed by the amount of information that suggests there was something like that on the drawing boards at the very least. Um, There's been a lot of incredible research since the uh, the downing of the Berlin Wall. And um, there is definitely documentation and testimony as powerful as that of the proponents that we are dealing with extraterrestrial visitation. But to look at it, you have to say, well, where is this documentation? And there is plenty of blueprint. There's plenty of... uh, Research information that was extracted from the facilities in Germany at the time that showed that they were doing advanced projects. They were dealing with aircraft that could make one flight from Germany to the United States and back. They had stratospheric aircraft. They were ahead of us with uh, high-altitude flight. They were – look at the V-2. That was the beginning. That was just – by the time the V-2 had hit, hit dirt, they had things on the drawing board And they were working to build things far in advance of that. Yes. And that's fact. Now, to say that they were the inventors of the UFO, I feel that they probably were dealing with UFO-style designed aircraft. And if we we look at the 1930s into the 40s, just a couple of the designers coming out of Germany, you've probably heard of the Horton Brothers Mm -hmm. with the flying wing. Well, they were... They were testing that before the war ever started, and they were working on a jet-propelled model that flew twice in February of 1945. They test flew that, and that's a fact. There's no proof that was used operationally, so there again, it shows that that could not have accounted for all the sightings of the Foo Fighters and UFOs in the Pacific and you name it.
1: Yeah. And uh, one of the cool uh, little – it's only like a couple sentences in the book, but it really was kind of cool – is that uh, when they brought some of those German scientists over, they were, they were like, you know, we want to go to the moon. They had—they sounded like they had some pretty uh, they had some pretty cool ideas in a sense um, that eventually ended up becoming the U.S. agenda as far as, you know, going into space and that kind of thing. So they were thinking pretty far ahead
2: of the United States.
0: Way ahead. Von Braun's whole issue was that he wanted to build rockets for space exploration. However, he was caught up with the Nazi Empire, mm-hmm. and you know, there's that group that say, well, he was an SS officer, but I really think that he was in a situation where he really wanted to do his science, even though there was a lot of horrible outcome of it, and he knew the war was going to end, and he was surely going to go to the American side. He knew that, and that's why he he made it such an effort to uh, surrender. And these guys, they were there. They had the plans. They were. When they got to the United States, they were frustrated by the lack of assistance they were getting. It wasn't until Sputnik went up that we finally allowed that rocket team to say, go for it. It was Sputnik, the Russian uh, satellite, that actually gave them the ability to really go for it. They were really kept at bay, working on little missiles and things that they, you know, were ready for, you know, two- and three-stage rockets. We're going to put ourselves on the moon. We're going to explore space. And the U.S. really didn't want to have anything to do with that at first. And there was a big problem. And so, yes, Germany was so far ahead of us in many ways. And uh, I am—I would not be surprised. And many people say that there, you know, there were flying saucer-style aircraft being developed. And you have to look at it also that all the way into the late 40s, counterintelligence, Army counterintelligence, intelligence were looking into the Horton brothers, Dr. Uh, Alexander Lippich, all these people who were making these radical designs because they were trying to find out if it was German. They really thought that there was a possibility it was German, so they were bringing these guys back in for reinterrogation because, once again, if it was theirs, it would, be ha- it would have been compartmentalized within the United States government also. Mm-hmm. And that's why you hear things, of, of course, the skunk works and Area 51, were they, was that a place where this technology was being exploited? And did it account for UFO sightings of then? Was the craft that went down at Roswell an aircraft that was just taken from the drawing board and because we had the resources and the will, just like we did with the atomic project, go for it, did we get it in the air did it crash and all of a sudden they had to cover up with flying saucer. That's all these debates that are taking place and all yep. the problems with this. Mhm. It's uh it's a sticky situation. It really is. But I'm fascinated by it. Oh, totally. I'm fascinated because I you can't discard the amount of I mean there's tons of engineers and scientists who've come forward in Germany who said they were involved with flying saucer type projects. I can't recall the name the, the man's name, but coming out of the archives was a letter to the Air Force from a German engineer stating that when Roswell took place, it was because of the research his laboratory was doing. That came out of the National Archives. Oh, wow. And there were plenty, but it's being written about and talked about in Europe and in Germany, but here in the States, you don't talk about German flying saucers. Many of my colleagues would just, you know, they cringe if I mention it. But it can't be ignored. It can't be discounted. Even if it's only for 1% of the sightings, that, you know, did we uncover something that we were exploiting? And some of the sightings indeed were those aircraft. I don't know. But just to talk to you about the food fires during the war, they were extraordinary in terms of what was taking place.
1: Yeah. And then I guess there's some big picture type analysis. Based on all of what you've read and all the reports you've looked at, I guess, what's your determination on what this Foo Fighter phenomenon was? And I'm not just speaking of the specific uh, label for Foo Fighters, you know. I mean, like, all the, all the weird stuff that was going on up
2: there.
0: So you're talking about throughout the whole war? Yeah. I'd have to say, if I was looking at just through the eyes of the actual recovered intelligence memoranda, we were dealing with either misidentifications of high exotic technology out of Germany, but if I was looking at it through the eyes of somebody to step back and look at it post war and pre war, we were dealing with something that was extraordinary in addition to and I feel that I would like to think that there is extraterrestrial visitation. And you have to throw in all the other factors, like I said, abductions, uh radar cases, some of the good good things, uh reports that we have of the phenomenon, I would I think that the Foo Fighters were part of that. Some of them were.
2: Yeah, and this is purely speculative. This question, and
1: uh, it is. Do you think that the U.S. and Brit- and British forces, do you think all along they thought that this was German technology? Now we know when they when they brought back some of the German scientists, they were asking about the Foo Fighters. So obviously they still weren't sure. Right. But do you think um, at any point in the war, or at at some point, or how do you think? They looked at the Foo Fighters, and do you think at some point maybe that they that they realized this couldn't be German, because it was going on for a long time, and they were bringing in a lot of intelligence and everything. And um, so I guess that's the question really. Uh, where do you think the uh, the U.S. and British forces fell on that whole sort of scenario and debate
0: during the war? I think they were totally confused and were thinking it was German technology. Post-war, once they got the German scientists and engineers in, recovered the facilities, the documentation, the patents, all those aspects, and put together the picture. If it was there, it went totally deep. It totally went black. And I I don't know what to tell you other than it seems to me if if we're going to the Robertson panel report, which was the only known CIA report to even mention the Foo Fighter. That report gave a very weak explanation, but we know those men were seriously involved. And why it was in there, if it was indeed something they knew about, I don't know. But at the same time, did the men know something that it was extraterrestrial? And that puts the, puts the whole light on the situation, where the Robertson panel was definitely there to start to start the debunking. They knew it was something extraordinary, and uh, but some of the people that they were bringing in to interview during the Robertson panel. Were at, a, were at a level of a need to know that they couldn't afford to let out that they had any kind of inkling. They were looking at it like, gentlemen, let's all put our heads together, even though Robertson was sitting there with probably with a very good clue. So was Alvarez. Gal Smith was there. And, you know, these men and some of the Air Force intelligence officers, I believe Heineck was brought in to, inter- to interview with, I think, Ruppelt was up. Was Edward Ruppelt brought in there? I believe he was, too. And they just couldn't let out what they did know because it was dark. It was a compartmentalized deep secret within the uh, air intelligence agencies and aerospace agencies, whoever's controlling that information, military complex, whatever.
2: We've heard all this stuff
1: about uh, potential German UFOs and they interrogated the German scientists and that kind of thing. What kind of information do we know of, if any, came out of uh, the Japanese side of the war with regards to Foo Fighters and, and aerial phenomena type of thing, uh, it sounds like uh, they really didn't know what was going on either. And, and did their pilots see stuff too, or was that mainly uh, the German pilots? And 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 what do we know, I guess, post-war from
0: Japan? Japan is is far more mysterious. Uh, the intelligence apparatus operating and exploiting the Axis powers, such as Italy, Germany, and Japan, are better scientists and. Engineers were in Europe. Then they came down to Japan. The only known reference I know of personally is in Dr. McDonald's notes where Griggs said that questioning some of the people in uh, Japan about the phenomenon, they were just as mystified. They could not account for what our bombers were seeing at the time. Any other documentation, if it exists, it's in, it's in Japan or it's in Another language and I'm not aware of it, but I know of nothing. It, it's really just far, far less than what came out of Europe. We sort of touched on the Robertson panel. How much do you think the way the Foo
1: Fighter investigation was handled segued into how UFO investigation was handled by the U.S. government? Because we see that, uh, that sort of uh, ridicule methodology, if you will, by some S2, I guess. Is that what they're called? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, some of these S2 guys and their ridicule – methodology, I guess you could say, was used in some aspects when people came in with uh, Foo Fighter reports. How much do you think the way the Foo Fighter situation was handled during World War II, how much of that do you think shaped the way the Robertson panel made suggestions for how to handle the UFO phenomenon?
0: I believe by the time the Robertson panel met, there was a true art form in investigating, in documenting, and in how they handled that information regarding any kind of public leak. Uh, I think that was really, really refined by late war. I think in the beginning of the war, of course, you know, our military is new. When we we went over in 1942, Stalin was screaming at President Roosevelt, invade France, invade France. We couldn't have. We were not prepared. We were not prepared as an army, and so we were developing. So as we developed, those signs were coming in, and I think that's why we were seeing the confusion among units. And the reporting, but by end end of the war, I think the time that war ended, 46 to 48, it became an art form. And that's why we saw those UFO projects as either a front or an extension of something already in existence, which I, I truly believe it was a public relations situation with uh, three UFO projects to, to a certain extent. I think they were getting information, but they still didn't have or even realize they were only part of a cog of a larger thing that had been developed, probably at Wright field, probably who knows where, but they had made it in R form by the time that the Robertson panel made.
2: Since I didn't
1: even have really known that Robertson and Alvarez and some of these other guys were involved with the Foo Fighter investigation during World War II, I presume that that wasn't known at the time either. It wasn't like they established the Robertson panel and they were like, we're going to put these guys in charge, don't worry, they... They handled similar situations in World War Two. Was it more sort of a coincidence, uh, if you
2: will? Wink, wink.
0: I don't think it was a coincidence who they picked to the, the form that panel. I think some of the people were. I think that it was well orchestrated by the CIA because the media was just inundated with these sightings, and it was just out of hand. And if anyone is going to know about the, you know, if the governments are are experiencing a phenomenon and they don't know what it is, they just know more than the public. They had to have some of the guys who really had more of a clue, and these guys were on the Robertson panel. I believe Galsmet, Robertson, and Alvarez were key. Griggs wasn't asked to be there, and even though he was the, he was further up the chain, I believe that Griggs was he was listed as the most knowledgeable in the report, as the most knowledgeable of the Foo Fighters. Where was Griggs? Griggs was the first employee of. Project RAND. Project RAND became the RAND Corporation in 1948. Mm-hmm. And it was General uh, Arnold who set Project RAND in motion with the Douglas Aircraft Company. We had to realize these men were radar experts, so they were looking at it as they were aircraft. And then you just have to say, okay, what kind of aircraft? Extraterrestrial or highly unconventional? So that's where, it's, where it sits. So when that Robertson panel met, they had. A real working knowledge of the subject. They were seeing what was taking place in the lower ranks, and they were trying to guide us. There was an actual beginning of a debunking program where it was going, from 53 on, it just, it was going to go undercover from here on out as much as possible.
1: Uh, I was being sarcastic in the sense that, like, you know, when they established the Robinson panel, they didn't say, oh, don't worry, because we're putting the the people who handled this sort of thing during the war in charge. Like, the, the, uh, the people didn't have any idea that absolutely. was going on.
0: Especially since the, the report was released until uh, FOIA, I think, 74. Uh, and I think the actual – no, I'm sorry. It was uh, in the conclusion of the University of Colorado, the Condon report. I think it mentioned it, a very watered-down Robertson-Pennel report. Since then, more has come to light with FOIA. But, yeah, the general public had no clue, and it wasn't supposed to. To a certain extent. And, uh, those, they were not household names. Yeah. And that's why they were never really, unfortunately, they passed away before anyone with a serious research uh, capability could go after them. Mm-hmm. McDonald's think, you know, I'm glad he was able to do that. Yeah. But look how he was. He was such a persistent, intense, uh, person in terms of going after the, the truth.
2: Now, we know about all these, uh,
1: obviously, uh, we obviously know about all these different sightings and stuff going on during World War II. Did that sort of thing come to an end after World War II, or did it continue on into Korea and future wars? I mean, we don't hear a lot about Foo Fighter sightings from Korean pilots or, you know, pilots who flew during the Korean conflict and Vietnam and that kind of thing. Or maybe uh, at that point, everything was already so well set up that those sort of reports don't get out. I don't know, but that's what I'm asking you. Um, What's the situation with Foo Fighters post-World War II? Because as people would be led to believe, you know, that it was just a World War II anomaly and that was it, and then it ended, then UFO started. But um, what I'm asking is, uh, you know, combat pilot type of things, did they have their own Foo Fighter sightings in future wars?
0: Yes, absolutely. The sightings did not stop. The big term that came out, was in '46 where they were beca- they were being called ghost rockets at the time, and that was they were again over Turkey, all over Europe, Scandinavia, <laughs> and what they w- believed they were were Russian. The Russians were sending V2 captured uh, V2 rockets or whatever ordinance out, you know, in test flights. Mm-hmm. But the problem is they couldn't find them. If they did, they found one, but there was never any clear-cut explanation of what they were. Even though they were suspected to be a Russian, you know, exploitation uh, program that was in place, and for some reason they were launching all these rockets, which were in the, I think, the thousands, which made no sense in itself. And reports of UFOs were seen during the Korean conflict in Vietnam. However, I have seen no documentation personally. I think Dr. Richard Haynes, who really has put together an extraordinary compilation of air reports by pilots, both airlines and military, he has some. But it's nothing to the degree that we saw during the war. However, most people don't realize the degree, like you said, until this book came out, of how much was being seen. Yeah. And so are there researchers out there hitting Vietnam era? I, I have known of no one to discuss that. Are you aware of any? No, no. So that doesn't mean it's not there. That's, that's the key, you know.
2: Yeah,
1: exactly. Now, what about commercial pilots? I don't even really – I'm not a – I don't really know much about the history of air flight and all that stuff. So uh, maybe the, maybe commercial pilots weren't even that prevalent during uh, the war. But uh, I guess the question I have is, during the era of the war, during World War II, what about commercial pilots? Were the were these sort of Foo Fighters sightings – were they only f- seem to come about during these combat situations or in the, in the theater of operation areas – or was this also going on at the time with commercial pilots and
0: that kind of time? It was uh, commercial pilots during the war I'm not aware of too much. But, however, my book, I completely left out all the civilian sightings around the world. I mean, there were many sightings in the United States uh, by civilians reported of craft operating <laughs> that were not zeppelins or were not air balloons or appeared to be uh, unknowns. And, but they were not in the book. And that's the thing. That's where now, as you ask me, we are definitely dealing with something that really it, it, it leans more towards an extraterrestrial visitation. But again, a lot of these reports came out of the NICAP files, APRO files, and a lot of people wrote into magazines when there was much more publication um, publications on the newsstands. Mm-hmm. Of course, a lot of the early books. Like, Frank Edwards, a lot of the people who were really in the 60s digging into the subject, they were pulling in reports that were coming from all over the place during the war. And I believe uh, even Donald Kehoe, when he started investigating, he actually came across the term Foo Fighter, and he did his uh, his investigation. He claims he got hundreds of reports from pilots. So a lot of those pilots In the United States, I am sure, and I think I even have one or two civilian pilot reports that uh, they did encounter things that during the day and night that were definitely like the Foo Fighters. Yeah, and so they do exist, and it it wasn't just military at all. Mm -hmm. And it was out over ocean, so we have you know all types of uh, navy vessels, just you know sighting them and everything else.
2: Yeah. This one's sort of like a big, a really
1: big-picture question, you could say. I guess uh, one of the prevalent sort of theories involved with the UFO phenomenon is that, you know, uh, humans began nuclear testing, and that's what attracted the UFOs. Obviously, this uh, the Foo Fighter phenomenon sort of flies in the face to that theory in the sense that, as far as I can tell, they, they were going on way before we started tinkering with the nuclear testing and that kind of thing. So they, they obviously had been here before that. What's your take on that whole scenario, and, and, and what's your take on the idea that nuclear testing attracted the UFOs? But the food fire thing was going on before that, so that, that, might,
0: uh, that might nix that theory. I think it does, exactly. And when I first encountered that theory, it was through Leonard Stringfield. He truly believed that the, uh, the testing of the atomic bomb in Trinity site in the desert was the calling card for the UFO. He thought that that actually brought visitation. He thought that's what it was, and I found that very interesting because, of course, we know he was in the in intelligence capacity with the Fifth Air Force, moving in to Japan after the war, where he had a sighting. He was aware of Foo Fighter reports through intelligence memoranda. That was it, mm-hmm. and he was un- unfortunately we never uh, were able to uh, talk about this because he uh, died in '93, I believe. So he had no clue to the extent of what was being seen by the military. And the fact that just because they were showing up at the nuclear facilities didn't mean that they were exclusive. It was, you know, of course they're going to show up there, but they were being seen everywhere. And there is a degree of plausibility that because it is a nuclear facility, that is drawing the attention of the UFO. And that's where people believe, well, if it was, if it is extraterrestrial visitation, that would be a very logical source to investigate. Yeah. But uh, – I don't think that that has anything to do with the subject because it goes back too far mm-hmm. before anything ever happened.
2: Yeah,
1: because it seems like not only uh, the Foo Fighters, but the, the airships that you talk about that were flying over Europe and stuff way like in the early 30s and the 30s and stuff like that. That was way before we started tinkering around nuclear weapons and stuff, right? Right.
0: Absolutely. So it's it's just uh, it's massive. And I really wish I could be able to speak – uh, you know, and completely feel confident that my peers haven't uncovered more information. Like the researchers in Sweden or Italy and everything, unfortunately, there's no communication among us to clarify, to enhance what I've brought forth. Mm-hmm. So by no means, what I've been talking about on your show, has there been any kind of conclusion? This is a work in progress. Oh, totally. And I am totally aware and I will totally accept any type of flaw that I've that I have presented in my book, and rectify that. But the, the fact is, it needs to be done. There needs to be a worldwide type of organization to bring all this together, as we all know. Just on the war, I would love to see that because I'm sure there is just as much sitting in these other countries that would just—it would just be mind-boggling—the the amount of information that was occurring. And you'd have to say, well, you know, it can't be German technology to account for a worldwide type of uh, sightings like this. There's no way.
1: And you kind of touched on this a little bit, but there's not like a Keith Chester out there in Germany or England that's that's doing the Foo Fighter investigation uh, from that side, or Russia, from that side of, of, uh, of, the, of the Atlantic, right? Have you heard from anybody from, from those parts of the world that have checked out the book or have checked out your research and said, you know, oh, here's a bunch of stuff that you shouldn't consider or whatever?
0: No one. No one's contacted me at all. I was hoping that's what would take place, but it only came out in May this year. So,
2: yeah.
0: uh, you know, many people can't read English who who probably are aware of the book, and they're, they're waiting for a translation of the book. I don't know, and I can't, of course I can't speak German, I can't speak Russian or anything, so there's a barrier there, and I'm sure there's people out there who have researched this just as in depth in other countries.
1: Mm-hmm. You should talk to uh, Paul Stonehill.
0: I know the name. Some where
1: yes. Yeah, you should check out. Uh, he might he might have some insight into all okay. that. Like you said, the book just sort of came out, so he probably sort of uh maybe getting feedback, like trickling in. But have you even prior to that, when you're doing your investigation, did you talk to a lot of of uh of veterans who were in the war and who saw the Foo Fighters and and sort of are they did their testimonies sort of like peak out in the uh, when they came back from the war in the 50s and 60s or whatever, and the UFO phenomenon got really big. Um, Then they maybe came out and talked about it, but now it's not so much, and you're not hearing so much. And we talk about Roswell and the race with the Undertaker. Of course, that's going on here with the World War II veterans, Um, you know, the greatest generation. They're they're dying out. Um, So their their testimonies are sort of uh, being taken to the grave. Um, So I guess just talk a little bit about uh, have you talked to a lot of veterans who saw these sort of things, and are they still coming forward, or is that kind of petering out?
0: It's petering out because of the age factor. Mm-hmm. You know, there is definitely a problem. Yeah, 1,500. Uh, I believe they did an estimate of 1,500 veterans a day from World War II are passing away. Oh wow! Day. It is—it's pretty startling. I, invent, I had interviewed probably a good 10 veterans for my book. I think there's only two that are capable of discussing anything with me. Most have passed on, or are in such poor health they can't even remember. And it's it's very uh it's very sad. Yeah. And I attended just recently last month a uh, night fighter reunion in uh, Reading, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And you know surprisingly about I guess 75 people showed up to that. And so there's about 30 pilots. And uh, Mr. Augsburger, who is commanding officer of the 415th, he's very sharp, still getting around. And you know he, we talked about his sighting, but he was the only one there. A lot a couple of the guys had heard of the Foo Fighters. Not all the guys did until after the war. But they so much has changed in just 10 years. I think we have seen the best that we're going to see in terms of documentation. Fortunately, I believe the BBC, uh, some other people who, who are documentarians, they have put together good interviews. Many people don't know this, but some of the best research on World War II and I'm aware of came out of a uh, gentleman named Jeff Lindell. Jeff Lindell was, I believe, the University of Indiana, about 1991. The same time I did, I started my research with uh, Len Stringfield. Mm-hmm. He was writing the thesis of his um, uh, his college thesis, and it was about folklore. And the Foo Fighters came up, so he was determined to find out what took place and to show that it was mythological pinnings, and it was nothing but misidentifications, mythology, you name it, he was under the impression that it was definitely an optical illusion, uh, according to his sources. But what's key to Jeff Lindell's research is he interviewed dozens upon dozens of veterans in the early 90s and recorded hundreds of hours of interviews. Oh, wow. He did archival research. He had a lot of great documentation. He undercovered a project that was conducted by the United States Navy uh, in July of 1945 and continued on for 10 years that had to do with the eye and how that even the best pilots were going to uh, suffer from some type of, uh, I guess, illusion, even, uh, even though that they were very capable and very sharp and had great eyesight. So he tended to believe that that's what that was, but the fact is, he did this great research. He brought forth a lot of material. You might find a little, a couple of his papers on the net, but he is totally reclusive. He will not speak about it. He will not give his files to anyone in the ufology, ufological uh, research areas. It's a real frustration. Oh wow! And um, he has some key, key information. I have a lot of what he had, but there was is his interviews when he got to speak with these guys you know, when they were so much younger and fresh. And uh, also, one of the, the, I guess, the largest researchers of the Sioux fighters in England was a, a researcher named Andy Roberts. Andy Roberts and Dr. David Clark are co-authors on From Out of the Shadows, I believe, uh, came out. Is the British uh, archives research that they conducted. Anyway, uh, Andy Roberts, prior to that, was very involved in uh, Foo Fighter research, and he had a, like a, a questionnaire form, and he talked with many pilots and wrote many letters, and he did archival research at the war, at the archives there in uh, England, and but unfortunately, nothing was published, and a lot of his records went to Jan Aldrich and Barry Greenwood, of which I was able to bring in and utilize. Uh, so there, were, the, right there. Are two people that I'm aware of that are working behind the scenes that many people will never hear of, and a lot of this documentation. I'm afraid will go, especially with Lindell. I'm a, I'm afraid that it will just pass on with him. Yeah. And uh, why is he so uh, anti? Anti
1: UFO or helping out the UFO people or sharing his information? Does he ever sort of let on to that sort of thing, or is just because he's you know one of those hardcore non-believers?
0: Uh, I think he, he's with the, he is an analyst with the United States Air Force. I don't know if he uh-huh. still so is, but he uh, he's convinced from his research that it was definitely something that was not attributed to anything but uh, misidentification, and uh, he had none of the extraordinary reports that I talk about. It, this is strictly just some of the military officers and pilots. So yeah. He was dealing nothing but the military, but he has to remember that the level of the rank also had something to do with it. Just because he was talking with a major who was you know, getting these reports in didn't mean that major was in the know.
2: Mm-hmm. Other
0: than that, it was a misidentification of a sighting that was probably a rocket. That's what he thought it was, but higher headquarters knew better. Yeah, So it was, you know, that's the flaw there in that type of research. He didn't branch out to the civilian side at all. So, yeah, how many of those guys are out there? I I think there's a lot more than we realize.
1: And what about second-generation type stories, Uh, people, you know, sharing stories that they heard from their parents and stuff when they were in the war? Do you get much of that
2: kind of thing?
0: No, I came across very little of that. Other than when I would contact, like, uh, some of the pilots, I'd end up finding out what they had passed on, and the son would tell me what he knew about hearing his father talk about it. Yeah. But that was what it was all about there.
1: Yeah, and that's hard as it is, because you can't really, there's not much you can ask to follow up. All right, just to sort of wrap things up, put a big bow on the whole subject, uh, you dedicate the book to Len Stringfield, your mentor. Talk a little bit about Len Stringfield. He's one of the really important people in the history of ufology, and uh, as we've pointed out a lot of times on this program, uh, ufology really, uh, its history is sort of nebulous, and doesn't have much of a... There's not too many people carrying on the history of ufology and talking about some of the key players, with the exception of some guys, you know, like Hynek and James McDonald. Talk a little bit about Len Stringfield and his role in in helping you out and and his role in shaping ufology.
0: Well, as I said, when I first encountered or I first was able to speak with Len, it was in 1989, and I knew a basic background of what he was involved with. I knew his... uh, Research efforts and his uh, connection to the UFO field extended back into the early 50s. Uh, he was very active, uh, you know, as far as reporting. And uh, so when I did contact him, he was dedicated to, of course, crash and retrieval research, mm-hmm. which, you know, that took up that whole decade until he passed on. And so dealing with him on that, he was really able to guide me and he took a real interest in. In helping me, it wasn't like we came became fast friends. It was, we talked about everything: uh, yeah. the weather, his health, uh, flowers. You know what he liked. His many theories. He he truly thought that there was a a great deal of extraterrestrial visitation and manipulation. He would always let you know that he was speculating. He never went over the deep end. He only he would only report what he knew. He, he respected everyone's story in terms, but if someone said that they, did, they didn't want their name out, that name was not getting out. To this day, his records remain within the family, never to be released. Oh wow! Uh, I still talk to his wife regularly, uh, Dell Stringfield, and she felt that Len released everything to the public that he felt was pertinent. As far as finding out the names of the, of the sources, she that was a you know a break of confidentiality that Len would not want and may jeopardize the family members or that particular person in the in the near future mm-hmm. that would get out. So those files remain buried and they won't ever see the light of day. I just I wanted to find out from her if she was going to destroy them, she said no. At one time they thought about that, but they decided to keep it in the family because one of the daughters is a writer and they want to write a, bio- a biography about her dad.
2: Oh, that would be great.
0: That would be great. However, I don't know the extent of her knowledge regarding <laughs> what he knew and ha- what he was like, but he uh, he definitely helped me along the way with, with that uh, teacher case I discussed early in the show and told me what to say, how to say it. He helped me with my interview techniques, which I really had no clue. And he... He tried to teach me how to listen. Listen, get it all down, go back, get your next set of questions up, and then correlate.
2: Yeah. And he was very good at that. And, uh,
0: of course, he started putting out his monographs. He told me, never write a book. <laughs> <laughs> he, t- he said, don't write a book. It was the worst experience he ever had when he wrote Situation Red in the 70s. I don't know why. I never really figured that out. But he, he said it was just too, too much of a horrendous project. So I didn't take his advice on that. <laughs> and, uh, but he was, a, he was a great guy. He's very significant to the history of ufology because he was one of the people who was in his 1957 book, Three Zero Blue, where he was an actual point of contact for the Air Force in terms of he was a ground filter sender. Uh, if UFO signs were coming in, he could determine they were something very unique. He could place the call to get a fighter sent up. Oh, wow. that was a pretty big position to have. And he was well-respected because he was so methodical. He was so – he didn't jump the gun. He reported correctly and accurately. And so I think that the Air Force felt he was a good tool to utilize. I I can't remember how many years that took place. It might have been two years. And, of course, he started his own uh, newsletter, uh, Civilian Research Investigation. IRFO, I can't remember the acronym, uh, he actually put that out for several years until his wife said, I, no, no more, I don't want to deal with it, so he decided to actually start to compile his cases for the monographs, uh, that's what led up to that, he he couldn't really uh, do the newsletter, so he put out 30 Blue, his first publication, 57, and he wrote his first book, Situation Red. And then, of course, the monographs came later. So he's
2: very, very
0: influential. He was part of the Roswell scene. He was one of the first people to interview Jesse Marcel. He was able to get that whole slew of original witnesses that came forward. Uh, Pappy Henderson, the B-29 pilot, who flew the wreckage to right field, allegedly. He was able to interrogate them, not interrogate, but interview them in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, uh, before – it. Uh, Kevin Randall jumped into the field, mm-hmm. and uh, Bill Moore and uh, Charles Burlitz and Don Schmidt. Now we have a whole a whole army of of researchers of many, many are are great researchers to the field, but it was really Len was one of the pioneers of that. It
1: sounded like he really uh, the grandfather of the crash saucer investigation because of so much uh, information
0: that he had. Yeah, I asked him, like, I said, well, I don't understand why you." Why are so many doctors coming to you and personnel coming to you? And he said, Well, it he happened to be at the right place at the right time. People had seen some of his publications, maybe heard him speak when he was out, you know, lecturing for MUFON conventions and things like that. He said that most of the people were coming to him only because they had no other way to talk about it. Yeah. To let someone else know. They couldn't some in many instances they couldn't even tell their family. Uh because the family was at jeopardy because of that type of pressure allegedly put on these people by government and military officials to keep keep it quiet. So he was, you know, like a, a psychiatrist or psychologist, you know, a radio show where you're calling in Dr. Frazier. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he, he was able to accumulate some great stuff. However, many fault him because it can't be verified. So – I'm sorry that that exists out there, but uh, he was a very, a very honorable man, and his research uh, ethics were top notch.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, now you said he shared theories with you. Like, what kind of, you know, what, what did he think about the UFO phenomenon? What was his take on it? He had been in it for so long. You know, what what kind of conclusions had he come to? And I'm sure he had all kinds of sources and that kind of thing too.
0: Well, his primary theory was uh, that the atomic bomb was of such significance that if anything was here, it was a indication that human civilization was heading towards disaster, and that brought about more investigation or research by the entities of another civilization from another world. Mm-hmm. Basically, that is, in a nutshell, what he thought. And from there, it just has bloomed that we ha- are seeing more and more of of this taking place, that we were seeing an increase in, let's say, the abduction because it had reached a certain point. At first, it was probably just probes that were coming here, and then more craft showed up, and more research were being conducted on us as as if like cattle. And, of course, many people took off with that aspect. Yeah. Uh, where we're being treated like tagged deer or cattle in the wild. So he pretty much didn't... Um, go from there. However, as the years went on, he would take theories that, you know, Dr. Jacques Vallée, the uh, ultra-dimensional or the the aspect where it's intelligence that has been with human civilization forever, that is progressing with us technologically as an experiment, maybe manipulating our, our existence, our development, evolution, who knows? But he started to entertain the more esoteric theories. He he didn't disregard them, but he really thought, the bottom line, he really thought that it was a nuts and bolts situation that we were encountering, that it was as simple as an aircraft from another planet, but because of the advanced aspects of that, it was bordering into the uh, paranormal, mm-hmm. so that was the multifaceted, so it couldn't be ignored. But he really felt that it was strictly a nuts and bolts when it came down to a situation that that whoever or whatever it is was capable of, uh, of presenting itself where we can't get a clue to, to what's taking place
1: yeah now did he ever share uh, his thoughts on what the government might have known about the UFO phenomenon because it sounds like if, if he had the ability to call up jet fighters and have them out there uh, he must have had some indication on how they at least how they felt about it um did he did he ever sort of like you know give you any indication of what he thought the government knew about the UFO phenomenon
0: Well, unlike Kehoe, who had real extensive ties to higher military uh, rank, he was in communication through the years with military officers or personnel that said, we're dealing with a phenomenon that can't be explained. So he knew that much, and he was able to convince himself through those kinds of connections that, the government was well aware of what was taking place. The problem was he wasn't convinced the government had an answer, which I'm not sure they do either. Yeah. He just he was just sure that it was so such a profound issue. He would devote his life to that research because it was fascinating to him. He couldn't let it go.
1: And what did he think of the world of ufology? Because uh, you know some people they're in the field for a long time. They kind of get burned out, and, you know, with the infighting and all that. And you know they don't want anything to do with it anymore. Was he, you know, how, what was his take on how how the, this this uh, you know quasi scientific field had developed uh, since he was in it from the fifties? I mean, from the fifties to the nineties, that's quite an evolution as far as the field goes. Uh, yeah. What was his take on ufology and, and where it was headed and where it had been?
0: He was very open. He but he was not a man to get into the uh, the fight, the infighting, mm-hmm. the character assassination, the the, no, I'm right, you're wrong, no. He was willing to listen to it all, maintain his belief, and he w- he wanted to learn. He was always wanting to know who was thinking what and why they were thinking it because he, he didn't ever say he had the answer. He was just accumulating information. So he was very much in tune to the uf- ufological process that was taking place and very interested. And he just had his certain degree of interest, which were the doctors and the military personnel who actually were handling the entities, the alleged recovered entities. That fascinated him the most. Now, we have a biological entity in our possession. Is that true? Well, it seems to be because I have a couple doctors who do not know each other and are aware that of these situations, their facts are correlating. And so he started to see that and really, really feel he was on something. But he was totally... Uh, Jacques Follet, of course, we know, went on to a different realm. He totally followed the works of him. He followed um, of course Richard Hall and all the big ones. I don't think there was one researcher that he was not aware of that he was more than willing to hear them, debate them, talk with them, and listen to them because he'd be willing to change his point of view, but his research was showing something that that's why the crash and retrieval became so important to him. He realized that, hey, there's something more to it here, and I'll let those other guys take care of their little niche. Like Linda Moulton Howe at the time was heavily into the cattle mutilation. So that in itself was fascinating because there was a whole ball game of people thinking that it was being conducted by some advanced research project agency out of the Army or the Navy, and under the guise of a flying saucer, they were using laser technology or whatever, electromagnetic pulse, whatever it was that he felt, some realms were thinking that. And he would actually say, yeah, that's a good idea, and welcome that into his his uh, ideas. So if you're asking about his character, what it was like, how he felt, he was the kind of researcher that we definitely need more of.
1: It sounds like it. It sounds like it. And I, I wish... uh. I wish the field of ufology had more, you know, had more, had a better memory, I guess you could say, of, of some of the players that were in the field and stuff like that. Uh, hopefully that'll come about in the future.
0: I have no doubt. I think there, there are people they may have not made their mark or they're not prevalent. I think what, you know, I hope it doesn't, you know, you have a few voices in the field that seem to dominate, but that, time will tell. New research, new books will come out, and uh, the older generation will be rediscovered for what it was and the value it offered to the field of today. History repeats itself. You can't go on without knowing your history. Mm-hmm. And I think because of the history, you'll be able to reevaluate the whole scenario with today's information and see a correlation if it's there or not. Yeah. And, uh, so I have, I'm optimistic, very optimistic that there's a lot more to come. There will be other string fields. There will be more Don Berliners, Bruce McAvees. There will be more Jerome Clarks. Be, we'll see a whole new generation of those.
2: What's next for you?
0: What do you have coming on down the
1: pike? Um, any speaking engagements you want to mention or, or uh, you know, any plans for future books and stuff like that? Or, or what's coming up, you know, in the end of 2007,
0: 2008 for Keith Chester? Well, I have not stopped researching. Um, I've been going to the archives weekly. I'm still delving into World War II. I'm going to stay in that niche. It just is something. The war fascinates me, and now that I found that there was a phenomenon involved, and it's even more spellbinding. And my my book, are so many holes and unanswered questions. I I just want to keep going with it. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping now that I can connect with an international, uh, at least establish an international dialogue. And I would love to see one day be able to travel to Germany yeah, uh, and checking their archives out or going to England. So I'd like to expand on that. And I do have another book in the works that will be with World War II. However, the way I work is I put down a theory and I say, okay, is that possible? Let's hunt the records to see if it is. And that's exactly how my book came about here in terms of I needed the documentation. And it was there, it presented itself to me. I was like, okay, I uncovered all the General Eisenhower Office documents, so it showed there was really an investigation, more so than uh, just a speculative uh, realm that has been promoted. And now I want to get into the more specifics. I want to learn more about Dr. Griggs. I want to learn more about Dr. Robertson. I want to learn more about uh, what did the American intelligence apparatus extract out of Germany? Was there a flying saucer program? Can we say, without a doubt, nothing like that existed with there's just as much information in their ball court as highly speculative or suspicious as it may sound that there are there's these abductions. so it, it's it really needs to be explored and should not be shut out, and we should keep going and I will stay with World War II. That's what I plan to do. My uh, I have a speaking engagement near Philadelphia in April of 2008 to a very small group. Uh, but as of that, uh, there's nothing on the horizon unless I'm contacted like you and your wonderful show. I mean, you've been great, and I hope to have more of these conversations. And Hopefully more people are, are interested. I did find out I had a rude awakening here with the local press. I live near Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I contacted several times the local papers, the Baltimore Sun, no reply, no interest. Oh man! Um, And yet, you'll see in one of the local papers where someone wrote about the history of duck decoys or something, a new author, which is great, and I I you know admire that. But I find that you know, especially with Ken Burns' war documentary on the relationship between a generation and a phenomenon, why would they not take interest? Uh, but there's been no, no one interested. Weird. Uh, you were the first. Well, uh, I appreciate that. I- thank you very much. And, you know, I now am hooked on your show. Knowing what you are about, knowing what your show is about, because I've had a chance to research your site, and I apologize for really not having done that prior to our contact with each other, but I'm not a big Internet searcher. Um, I didn't do any research hardly at all on the Internet because I felt like I needed to see the sources myself from the real archive sources. I can't trust a lot of documentation up there, you know, if it's for real. Uh, Of course, you know, John Greenwood, that may be a different source because he seems to be leading with that kind of situation, as is a couple other things like Project 1947 and NICAP site with Francis Ridge, a wonderful site for uh, historical documentation, if you're aware of that. Anyway, so I um, I just hope more people contact me, such as yourself, and I really appreciate the time you've given me and the fact that you listen and have asked me questions beyond uh, a couple, you know, surface issues.
1: We don't do service issues here on the show. <laughs> well, let me just say, this book is awesome. I, I, I can't put it over enough. Strange Company, Military Encounters with UFOs in World War II. Uh, you've done an invaluable service to the UFO field with this book. Uh, we need more researchers like you. So many people want to just jump into something that's been done to death. Uh, if I see another Roswell book, you know, I'm going to cry. So to to get my hands on a book that does a thorough examination of a whole realm of ufology that just does not get enough attention, which is, of course, the Foo Fighter phenomenon and all the accompanying uh, phenomena that are a part of that was just a huge treat to me, and I just loved the book. Is there a website to plug?
0: Unfortunately not. No, I have no website, no. Um, Where can people get the book? You can order the book from any bookstore. Uh, You'd have to go in and order it. It's not on the shelf. It's... uh, printed by anomalous books. And, of course, Jerome Clark wrote the forward. And then, again, you can go to Amazon.com, any Internet, and just order. Just plug, type in the name of the book, my name or whatever, and there you go. It's just, it just doesn't physically sit on the bookshelf. It's available anywhere.
1: That's fine. We're an Internet show. People should be able to get a hold of it. Um, and they definitely should. It's a, it's a must-read for any serious student in the field of ufology. Again, the title of the book is Strange Company, Military Encounters with UFOs in World War II. It is awesome. I highly recommend it. Keith, thank you so much for coming on the show. I had a blast talking to you. I appreciate so much you just giving us so much time and really a thorough look into this phenomenon in the book. And um, I really I just thank you so much for coming on the show and, and, and uh, spending so much
0: time talking to us. My pleasure, and right back at you. It's a show like yours that's going to get into perspective what the people need to know about the history of this subject and keep it it in check because it's very important history. And uh, the fact that you're doing that puts you a notch above the rest, absolutely. I'm a big fan now, and I will definitely spread the word about you and your show.
1: Awesome, awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. Okay, thank you. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 3. Big, big, super huge thanks to Keith Chester for coming on the show and giving us so much time. As we've noted, Keith does not have a website, so I will just go ahead and recommend you pick up Strange Company Military Encounters with UFOs in World War II. It's available via Anomalist Books, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. Go to your bookstore, ask them to order it, they'll pick it up for you. It doesn't matter how you do it, but definitely get your hands on a copy of Strange Company. It is an outstanding book and easily one of the 10 best UFO books of 2007. Moving right along, it's time now for BOA Audio listener feedback, and we have a short and sweet letter this week that came relatively recently, but moved to the top of the inbox. It comes from someone billed simply as SAP, under the title of Thank You Mr. Been All of America Dude, Here's What SAP Has to Say. Hey, I discovered you through Red Ice Creations a while back, and I have to say that your style is the illest in the game. Keep it up. Peace from Norway, SAP. Thank you so much for writing in SAP. As I said, it was short and sweet, and it moved to the top of the inbox. For the simple, unwritten rule here on listener feedback, international letters always move to the top of the list. We've heard from listeners all over the world, and now we can add Norway to the list. I love hearing from the international listeners and I am humbled to be told that my style is the illest in the game. Stick around, SAP. The month of December is only going to get iller on BOA Audio. Thanks for writing in. If you want to be a part of BOA Audio listener feedback, either simply go to com, click the contact button on the left-hand side of the screen. That'll put you on the contact page. Or simply write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. Either one of those methods will put your correspondence. On the road to BOA Audio listener feedback. Up next, of course, it's time for the thanks portion of the program. Super huge thanks to the fantastic BOA staff Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., and Tina Senna. Week in, week out, providing top notch reading material for the BOA readers and offering me a ton of feedback. They were instrumental in helping us shape the merchandise line that we'll be talking about in just a little bit. But let me give you a little thumbnail on what was going on at BOA this past week. R. Lee had Trickster's Realm under the title of Medley of Weirdness, talking about how many different esoteric genres seem to overlap, and how we may be able to find the answer to many paranormal mysteries by looking in those areas of overlap. Leslie's Gray Matters tackled the whiter shade of gray, discussing how many people seem to identify the grays, as being grey-skinned, and based this on the Woodley Streber communion book. But in reality, the cover of Communion has a tan-slash-greenish-color alien. Leslie sort of digs into that mental framework of why people seem to make that incorrect connection between Communion and the grey color for the greys. Wrapping up the week is Chiron's K-Files with Destroying the Universe, talking a little bit about the global warming debate, and some of the latest news in that regard that has to do with cosmology, dark matter, and a host of other weird and wild stuff. So as you can see, tons of stuff going on at Benal of America this past week. As we say week in and week out here on the program, if you're only listening to the podcast and you're not reading the columns at com, you're only getting half the story. Now, usually is the part of the program where we talk about making donations and how we need your help and support, but over the past couple of weeks we've been teasing the new line of BOA merchandise, and I'm happy to report that it is now available for you to check out and hopefully purchase at the BOA store. How can you find the BOA store? That's simple. You go to banallofamerica.com or the page where you got this audio. You'll see the ad flashing the new designs for the BOA merchandise. I've been working on it for over a month now with a very talented artist. goes by the name of Circle Dancer. I'm sure it was definitely trying for Circle Dancer to work with me because I was always hitting on the little points. I want this changed. I want this moved an inch. It was a little crazy at times, and I thank Circle Dancer for her patience and hard work over the last month in putting these designs together. What are the designs? UFOs are real. Get over it. I believe in Bigfoot. Aliens built the pyramids, and one that is very popular, it seems already, Stonehenge, was an inside job. These are the kind of merchandise that people will see you wearing. It'll start a conversation about all the different esoteric topics we cover here on the program. Now, when you're wearing the merchandise, you can let your freak flag fly and really engage people in esoterica. In addition to the very cool new VOA line, I got a little something special here for the folks who listen to the end of the program. You're the hardcore listeners, and I want to give back to you a little bit. So I'm going to give you the heads up on a very cool promotional deal that we are going to announce next week on the program, December 8th. But we're going to give you the heads up here on December 1st. Next week's guest is Jeremy Vaney. He has been very generous and donated over 20 copies of his book. I know why the aliens don't land. They're going to be part of a little promotion at BOA we're going to call Vainy Mania. And what is Vainy Mania? Pretty much for the next 20 people who buy stuff from the new BOA store, you're going to get a copy of Jeremy Vaney's book as well. Go over to BOA, pick up some merchandise, drop me an email, and say, Hey, I heard about Vainy Mania already via the end of the program. I bought some stuff at the store. Here's my information. And you'll be on the list to receive one of the 20 or so copies of Jeremy Vaney's book. Don't say I never rewarded the folks who stick around here to listen to the end of the program. You are my favorite listeners by far, and as such, you get first crack at Vaney Mania. I've already sort of given away who's coming up next week, but we'll give you a little more preview here. It's Vaney Mania next week on BOA Audio as prolific esoteric pundit Jeremy Vaney joins the program. For a freewheeling hour and a half long interview, we'll be discussing the evolution of Jeremy's abduction experience, his film No One's Watching, an alien abductee's story, his entry into the field of esoterica, and his take on ufology from an abductee's point of view. Plus, we'll cover his trip to the X conference this past September, his book I Know Why the Aliens Don't Land, Disclosure, Young People in Ufology, and Policing the UFO World. In addition to all that, we'll have some laughs about angels, ass shots, and Alfred Weber's 9-11 theories. And, of course, tons and tons more. That's next week on the program, Vaney Mania, as Jeremy Vaney joins BOA Audio for an extended conversation. And on that note, there's not much left to say, folks.
2: I want to thank you all so much for listening. Until you hear from me next week, this is Tim Binall, signing off.